Hello and welcome to episode three, series one of the 2024 NCG Golf Podcast. I'm your regular host, Tom Irwin, and I'm joined as ever by my colleague, muse and fountain of all things golf, Steve Carroll. I've never been called a muse before. It sounds it sounds quite dirty. It does it does have that sort of vibe, doesn't it? <laughs> and it's it's funny, I'm recording from my bedroom, Steve, because I'm transatlantic. It's a very special episode brought to you live from Orlando. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to give both you and our special guest great props for getting up extremely early in the morning your time to do this. It's very it's very decent of you both. We don't have any problems getting up early in this house because we all get absolutely brutal jet lag. So it's been 3 a.m. starts all week. There's a lot to discuss though, isn't there? There's been a lot happening. So just for context, we are at the PGA Show, which is in Orlando, which is in Florida, which is in America. Um, and it is, it's the, a kind of annual meeting of the great and the good of the worldwide golf industry. It kind of started life as um, a way for PGA pros to meet with brands so they could select their product for their shops for the coming year. And it's kind of morphed into something much grander than that. And it kind of is a melting pot of people from all different parts of the golf industry who are getting together to discuss how they can work together for the coming season. And it's it's a really cool week. Um, so I think that is kind of the inspiration for this week's show. So with all that kind of shiny new gear in mind, this episode is going to be dedicated to, to gear, a discussion around equipment. Um, and we've got a very special guest, uh, more important, and NCG's very own Hannah Holden, known to many possibly as YouTube's Hannah Holden. Uh, she's a plus two golfer and an expert in all things gear. And she's going to be talking us through the latest trends, answer some of our questions, and hopefully offer some insight into what it's worth spending your hard-earned money on. Um, it's a brilliant time of year, this, Steve, to get out to America. Um, you must do this one day, Steve. Well, I've I've never made the cut list for Orlando. I'm like one of the longest-serving employees at National Club Golfer, and I've never actually been to the PGA Show. I think I'd probably be the, one of the only people on editorial who, who's, who hasn't been to a PGA Show. While you have the delights of Orlando, I've had the delights of BTME, the Turf Management Exhibition in Harrogate. And what's that? Very, very worthy. Yes, very worthy in its own right. Lots of nice stories to be told. Some great stuff from the RNA talking about how they put on the Open at Royal Liverpool last year and um, the IG Women's Open at Walton Heath. Some decent tales out of that, actually, which I'm not going to spoil by telling everyone now, but you'll see them soon enough, some some decent lines. It's pretty cool. You're not going to like my next bit. On Tuesday, I went to Isleworth. I am familiar with Isleworth. I am very jealous. I mean, all you had to do was put in Lake Nona and basically have me jumping off a cliff. Uh, I've been getting told off for calling it calling it Isleworth, but apparently it is Isleworth. Um, it's where Tiger used to live during the infamous fire hydrant episode. Uh, and I have to say that the drive-in is like literally one of the most emasculating things you'll ever do. The houses are like bigger than most hotels I've ever stayed in. Shaquille O'Neal lives there. It's like it's just like otherworldly stuff. Anyway, it's like super private. You've got to give the guy on the gate um, your passport when you drive through to kind of verify your identity um and then it's kind of what you'd expect really they've got this unbelievable clubhouse with um tour bags of all the people who've been members or played there um, who've been pga tour players uh, and there's a lot of them like i would think there's probably 50 or 60 um and i i played golf with sam horsfield steve he of Majestic's Bootcamp Confidential YouTube fame or whatever it's called. I've actually watched the first two episodes of that. It's pretty revealing. Sam Horsfield comes across as a really good guy, actually. So what was he like to play golf with? Well, he was good enough to give up five hours of his time to play with us chumps for a start. So that's like to his credit, isn't it? Um, he's 27, right? He's got a Lamborghini. That's pretty good, isn't it? I didn't have a Lamborghini when I'm 27 or even when I'm 47. So that was also quite a masculine. It's quite a masculine day all round, to be honest with you. Um, so we played. There was three. There was four of us, and we played a scramble against him. Um, me off uh, scratch, someone off two, and someone off eight. Uh, him on his own, and he beat us two and one. Played the back nine in six under. My God! So the three of you playing a scramble, best shot scramble, couldn't beat him. Yeah, it's pretty just, just shows how good they. Just shows how good they are, doesn't it? Yeah, he, yeah. Played the back nine in six under. I have to say that I think he's loving life. Like, like, I think life is good if you're Sam Horsfield. 
was listening to him chat to one of his mates in the clubhouse about what he was up to. He's going, well, I'm going to Mexico next week and then I'm straight into Vegas and then I'm going to go on holiday for a bit. Uh, he's got an English girlfriend, so he spends a lot of time in Derby, so it's not all good. Big year for Majestics, really big year for them because they've been the underachievers on live. Um, I don't think anyone would mind me saying that. They've said it. If you watch the YouTube sort of documentary, they say it themselves. I mean, I think they finished 11 of 12 teams last year. Um, so there is some there is some pressure on them. They've got to do a bit better, haven't they? They have, yeah. Um, he's full of it, actually, loving the, loving the Majestics chat. It was just a cool experience. I'm not sure of what my black catalogue of playing with tour pros is but there's not many so it's like one of those things that you'll sort of remember forever he drive he can carry his driver 325 <laughs> roll back now i know <laughs> practice isn't it? um it's been a big week hasn't it for um for golf what a what a performance by nick dunlap at the weekend did you watch that i did actually yeah um uh, particularly the the sort of final hour um, when he, he was sort of head-to-head with Sam Burns. Um, really impressed with him, actually. I thought after the double bogey, I thought he'd fold. I thought the pressure would be too much for him. And then for him to hang in and then stare Sam Burns down in the finishing straight. I mean, the kids I say that. That's, it's almost disrespectful to say that, isn't it? Because he's he's obviously um, an incredible golfer. You forget he's a sophomore at college. I mean, that's what, year two? Um, at Alabama, I mean... What's he going to do? He's he's going to turn pro, isn't he? The world's at his feet. What what a performance, though. I mean, he put all the pressure on Burns, and Burns cracked in the end, didn't he? And he he's still an amateur, right? He is still an amateur. No money. Lost one point five million dollars. And now we all know that uh, he's the first amateur to win since Phil. Is that right? On the PGA Tour, yeah. Um, I mean, there are there are lots of other amateurs who've won. Shane Lowry famously won an Irish Open, I think, as an amateur. Yeah, um, but he's the first on the PGA Tour to win since Phil. I think what was Phil nineteen ninety one something like that. Um, I'm quite keen to, to chat through amateur status. I don't really understand it, but I think we should bring Hannah in. Hannah's well into this topic. I think. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. <laughs> you sound <laughs> Just like checking it's my early. mic was turned on. Then you sound like it's early in the morning. I do sound like it's early in the morning. I wear my Garmin for a sleep score and it gave me 17 out of 100 last night. So I think that tells you everything about why it sounds early in the morning. (laughs) I love the way that you you use technology in every part of your life. It's not just golf equipment. You're measuring your sleep scores and everything. It's fabulous. You're really into it. It's ridiculous living in a house with three young people. It's all they do. They They get up, check their data, go to the gym, check their data again then check the notifications, and that's it. Then have some water. It's like being on a health farm, basically. If there's no data, it didn't happen. Did you even work out if you didn't track it? (laughs) This is what I have to put up with. Anyway, so this this amateur status thing, I reckon you both have probably got some views on this. What I don't really get it anymore. Like, why do we even have to have the difference between professionals and amateurs? And how do you even declare yourself professional? Do you just say, I am now a professional? I mean, I can give you some. I can give you some background if you want, Hannah, and then you can talk about your experiences of obviously being an amateur. Um, I mean, there are sports where if you're an amateur, you can win cash. Snooker's one of them. So if you're not on the main tour, you can actually win the tournament, and you'll and you'll get paid. It's a kind of technicality of how their class amateur status. But I mean, amateur status is obviously a Victorian thing. It's pretty Corinthian, isn't it? Sort of play for the love of the game, not for money. Um, the rules of amateur state has been around since about 1947 in America, 1950 um, for the RNA. All golfers are amateurs. Do you know that? All golfers are amateurs unless they accept a prize that isn't allowed. So that's if it's over a certain amount. If they play in a comp as a pro, if they take payment or compensation for giving instruction, although there now are some certain ex- ex- circumstances where AMS can actually do that the changes to the rules of amateur status, or if they're employed as a golf club or driving range pro, or if they hold membership of a body like um, a PGA. There are some various um, limits on prizes. Um, so the limit for scratch comps and amateur comps is 700 quid or $1,000. That's the most that you can have in prizes, and you can't have them in cash. You've got to have them in sort of vouchers or equipment or stuff in kind. 
um, when they did the last Rules of Amateur Status review a couple of years ago, they did think about um, giving out, allowing golfers, amateur golfers, to take cash prizes because they basically said vouchers are viewed in the same way as cash. Um, but in my opinion, they quite wisely shied away from that because if you think open competitions are a bit tricky now i mean imagine what they would be like if you actually handed out cash to people rather than vouchers um the limits on those prizes don't apply to long drive competitions or hole in one prizes that's how you can win a car i think in the old days to, to win a car you'd have had to turn pro um but now obviously it's allowed um and here's where hannah can really sort of come in and give us her experience of of, of what this situation's been like, because um, the rules got changed in 2021, and that allows amateurs. This is particularly, I think, relevant to players at elite level like Hannah is um, to essentially be sponsored. Um, so previously to 2021, you had this really weird situation where a clothing company could sponsor amateur teams. I think Adidas used to sponsor England Golf, for example. Um, and the people who were uh, in these kind of squads could have costs paid, entry fee, instruction and stuff like that. But if you were a top class amateur outside of an international squad, you weren't allowed to do the same. Um, so, I mean, it, it wasn't a level playing field is what I'm saying for people who are inside and outside amateur squads. And now, and now there is at least the opportunity um, for that to be the case. But you've been in and around um, squads, haven't you, Hannah? And you're obviously an elite um, who plays in these top-class competitions and faces these things every day. I mean, what's your view of it all? Uh, I think it's probably less clear-cut than it was when there was originally amateurs and pros because now you have so many amateurs who are full-time golfers. They're essentially, they essentially are pros, really. Obviously, I think there still needs to be that dividing line because you wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't want Rose Zhang rocking up at, the Yorkshire amateur would be a bit annoying, wouldn't it? Not that she would. But there obviously does need to be some line between the two. I think it's a bit weird on the money one, because like, why can someone win 30000 for a long drive comp as an amateur? But I can't win anything at an amateur event like that. That is a really confusing line. And I also think some of the sponsorship things are actually creating a bigger divide than before. So, example, a lot of the nil deals... Um, that we see uh, are being given to the biggest amateurs who are, tend to be at uni in America. So I know a few players from England who've gone across to America. They're doing really well in the States. They might be in like the top 25 in the world, but they can't accept any nil deals because of the visa regulations for international students in America. So they can be playing with a teammate who's not as good as them or is just a bit better than them, and they can accept loads of money in terms of sponsorship from different brands. So they get more money to pay for all their expenses, like more coaching, and the equivalent person or better player can't accept any money to help with their expenses because of, it, because of their visa regulations. So, can, can you, can, I mean, can you give me a sense, because obviously you have to pay this stuff, um, of, of how um, big the entry fees can get for amateurs who, who are playing a schedule. I mean, I know you play probably... A, a tighter schedule than a really a, a really top level looking to turn LPGA LETM might do. But can you give me a sense of like what it costs you every year to play in these tournaments? So I generally just play UK based tournaments, and for entry fees, they cost anywhere between about ninety and one hundred and thirty pounds. Then obviously you've got the expense of the fuel to drive there, uh, accommodation costs feeding yourself for the week while you're there, little bits like your course planners, caddies, et cetera, if you want to do that. So it's 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 pretty easy for one tournament to cost you £500, depending on who you're traveling with, if you have someone to split it with or not. So if you imagine some people are doing that like 25 weeks a year, it can get seriously expensive. I mean, I've spoken to parents before of girls in national squads who are going around to everything and it's costing them 10 to 15 grand. And that's just playing inside England. So once you get to the point you're traveling internationally, like it's it's costing a lot of money. <laughs> Why do we need the differentiation? You're saying you can't have Rose Zhang turning up to play in the Yorkshire Amateur. But what I, I just don't understand what, what the purpose is of, from a playing point of view, differentiating between pros and amateurs. I understand it from a teaching point of view. Like, so you must have a qualification to be a golf coach. I think that makes sense. Like, 
in the same way you have a qualification to be a football coach or a referee or a driving instructor or whatever. But why, from a playing point of view, can you not just say, we're just having a competition, it's just a golf competition, this one's for money, this one's for a box of balls, this one's just for fun. I don't understand what the purpose is. Well, what what are you going to do, give everyone in the world handicaps? Well, I mean, that's a different debate, but I don't think there should be a handicap system. But let's assume there still is a handicap system. Then, yeah, but you are you you can still play off scratch. So it's the best gross score that wins. You still have qualifying criteria to get onto whatever tour or into whatever event you want to play in. But I don't I don't understand why there's this delineation between pros and amateurs. I don't I don't get it. And I think it will be it will it will start to feel increasingly silly. Because people like Nick Dunlap, and this is not to take away from what he's done at all, like that is less surprising than it would have been 25 years ago because the college system is so good, because the coaching at that level is so good, because the access to facilities is so good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's increasingly a young person's game. And I wonder, we, we, we do now see people coming through earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, and it's just strange that, there's this there's this difference when there is no difference in reality i mean i suppose i suppose tom it's about long-standing traditions of the game i mean i'm I'm not saying that they're correct or not i mean i've outlined earlier um another sport where you can be an amateur and you can still win money it's 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 classed in a very different way the the differentiation in that sport in snooker is between main tour and not on the tour that's the differential not between professional and amateur status um I mean, we're talking about things that go back to the dawn of organised competitive sport. I, I would tend to agree, actually, that I think um, that everybody should, everybody, if they're of a level, should have the chance to be reimbursed effectively, and that might be sort of fifty quid in the hand at, at, at an amateur event, or it might be one point five million at a pro event. I suppose where it gets tricky. Um, is as I outlined earlier, if you're thinking about integrity of amateur competitions, for example, particularly where handicaps are involved, and there is this, there is a belief, isn't there, whether it's justified or not, that there are certain amateur competitions that are open to abuse, open, good use of the word, um, then does bringing cash prizes into it rather than, say, vouchers, for example, um, make these competitions even more open to manipulation, even more open to cheating. I mean, I, I, do, I don't know. It's a point of discussion, isn't it? But that is that is absolutely amazing. Like, if you if you go through the logic of that, you're basically saying the reason that professional status exists is because we need to have loads of referees around to make sure no one cheats. Don't <laughs> <laughs> say it that blunt. That is what you're saying. Because you say, no, we can't have people winning a holiday to Mauritius because loads of people cheat and protect the handicap to do it. That is, that is effectively the logic. It's very, very strange. Um, do you not think it just more highlights who does it as a profession and who doesn't? But people would still do it as a profession. People, So when they were asked the question, what do you do? They would say, I play golf for a living. And people go, that's great. Like, what, what, what do you mean? Because you need to have a badge that says, I am a pro. I just feel like it'd be weird if everyone was the same. But, but, <laughs> But that's only because that's not how it is at the moment. So if you wanted to go and play in a golf tournament next week for money, you go to Monday qualifying. If you qualified, you'd get in, you play, and you'd win some money. What well, you'd still be the same person, and you'd be the best golfer that that week. It does. I don't. I don't understand it. I don't get what purpose it's serving. But do you think I'm just making a ridiculous point? Yeah. But what? But neither you can explain why it exists. Well, I mean, it exists, it exists, obviously, because it's always existed. Um, I'm not saying that's a reason for it to exist, but that's why it exists, because you've got this very old school Corinthian ideal of amateurism, love for the game versus professionalism, people being paid for something for money, being seen as distasteful. I mean, that's the origins of it, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah. and they still persist in some areas, even though the world's massively moved on since, you know, the 1860s when football started to be organised and when golf was being organised and professionals became a real thing, didn't they? Could Nick Dunlap have said on Sunday, I am now a pro and taking the money? No, my understanding mm. is you have to do it before you enter the tournament. So when I've had friends who've played in professional events, when you go to like sign in or register, 
you have basically have to sign a form saying, I am staying amateur. And if you don't, you effectively turn pro when you hit your first shot and then you can get paid, but you can't choose afterwards to take the money. So Nick's going to be, Nick's going to be all right, isn't he? I mean, as soon as Nick decides to turn pro, which is inevitable, he is definitely going to turn pro at some point because of his PGA Tour exemption. It's just a matter of when. Um, it seems to me that he's already got in the Masters now, whether he whether he takes his US amateur crown to do it or whether he takes this win last week to do it. So he's going to be playing in the majors outside of perhaps the Open Championship. That's the only one I think that there's a there's a doubt for. Um, so he's definitely going to turn pro. And when he turns pro, companies are going to be lining up to chuck cash at him. Um, so, you know, I'm not too um, I'm not too sorry for Nick not winning his 1.5 million. It's obviously, a, mm. it's obviously, with hindsight, you can go, oh, I wish I'd turn pro now because I've got my 1.5 million. But then no amateur had won a PGA Tour tournament for 32 years so nick will do okay he'll be all right he'll be able to buy his lamborghini or his maserati whatever happens my point wasn't poor old mick dunlap it was more i thought it just raised the question of what on earth is amateur status all about anyway anyway let's move on um the other big news this week um has been in women's golf um where we've had a a transgender athlete hayley davidson winning an event Um, and hayley's the first male-born athlete to win a professional women's golf event um, and it kind of feels like this has been kind of coming. We kind of seen this in other sports, and now uh, this issue has arrived in golf. Um, she claimed top prize at the NCCT Women's Classic. Um, she was originally born in Scotland and began their transition in 2015. Um, she reports that she's lost a lot of yards in driving distance, and it's led to all sorts of opinions from all corners of the game. People like Judy Murray has been really outspoken on the protection of women's sport, um, has been very critical. Uh, Laura Davis has taken the view that if she's meeting the criteria for entry, then there's no problem. And Haley herself accepts that there needs to be some parameters in place to allow trans people to compete competitively. So it's a big debate. Um, we've reported it as news uh, on our social media channels and on our website. And it's the subject of this week's Reader's Wines. <laughs> So as you'll know, Reader's Wines is a regular section of the podcast where we have a look at some of the topics that have been making you grumble in the comments section. And this story certainly has. The, the, kind, of, the kind of vitriol on Facebook is pretty frightening. Um, like, I don't know how many comments we've had on this new story, but it's, it's very, very, very strongly worded stuff, and it's very much in one direction. Um, people say things like it's wrong. Uh, that's the top comment on our Facebook news story, I think. No way it should happen. Um, shouldn't be allowed. She is a cheat. And so it goes on. And I would say there's very little on the other side of it. And um, now it's a, it's obviously a delicate topic. Um, I did think we should discuss it because it's a big issue for our sport. Um, I think from my point of view, I find the whole trans debate very confusing. Um, I think at heart, I'm a liberal. And my sort of broad worldview is that if your behavior, actions or choices are not affect anyone else, then you should basically be allowed to get on with it. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing that the, this is a, it's a, such a small portion of the population, but gets such a massive amount of airtime um, online, debated in newspapers, and it's hugely triggering, triggering for a lot of people. And the other interesting thing, I think, is that it's kind of, it's, this whole debate feels like it's played out through the prism of sport. It's a, it's one thing where people, I think, feel comfortable having the debate, and it's one, it's one area where it becomes quite stark that you have men and women competing with each other, and then all of a sudden we have trans athletes, and people, I think, are happy to have a point of view on that. Um, and I think that's quite unfair on sport, actually, because and quite unfair on the athletes, because it's kind of it's almost like sport is being used as the vehicle before the debate. So I think it's an interesting thing. I'll be keen, keen to get your two views on it. Um, Hannah, you're obviously a, a competitive female golfer. How would you have felt if you were competing in that event? It, it's not fair on the other females competing in the event, is it? Because she has a physiological advantage. Like regardless of if obviously she's been through, well, we don't know what procedure she's been through or what medication she's on. Well, she started hormone replacement treatment in 2015. So she's been... She's kind of a long way down the road of making the transition, yeah. I, I believe she's had gender reassignment surgery. Yeah. So even though she's transitioned, she's she was still physically a male before, so she's had X amount of years where she had, like, male advantages in terms of testosterone for developing muscle 
like obviously different physical structures. So she, even if she has been through that transition, she's still going to be advantaged physically compared to the women she's competing against. Now, obviously, there's a wide like difference in terms of the women who are on tour who she's competing against, who are all different physically anyway. You, know, you could have Alexi who's advantaged by being six foot three or compared to someone else who's five foot four and can hit it further. But she has an advantage that no one else in the field can gain unless they like took testosterone or did something which is not allowed in the rules. Like if Lexi took steroids or testosterone to try and gain more muscle mass, that, that would be illegal. But in a sense, this individual like, has that advantage. But I don't think it's fair to say like she's a cheat or she's at fault because she's not. Like she's playing within the rules that are presented currently. So it's, it's, it's not her fault. But I think there should be, there needs to be some sort of review in terms of the wider rules by the governing bodies because if someone's having someone has a physical advantage that no one else has, that's not fair. So that's another weird thing I've seen that a lot of people are kind of using in the favour is that oh well she went to Q school and she didn't get through. Well, so well yeah, but anyone can <laughs> anyone can have a bad week. Like if Tom went to Q school, he might not necessarily get through. But it doesn't mean he could play. He can like play in women's events. I don't think you can just say just because she isn't winning everything that it's fine. No, that's a like proper straw man argument. I think how you've explained that there, where you sort if you if you look at it the other way around and say, okay, so it's clearly illegal for female golfers to uh, boost their testosterone levels unnaturally. Um, which, but that is effectively what is happening in reverse. So I think that is an interesting yeah. way of looking at it. Um, I think the, There's I think also loads of kind of minor other things that people don't realise are differences between men and women when it comes to like sports. So typically we have like a lot wider hip structures like that can affect like your stability. There's also difference in like tendon structures. So when females hit a certain age and get into puberty, our ligaments actually change structure so they become more flexible, which is to allow like the whole process of like childbirth to happen. So actually that affects loads of things in terms of mobility. So we have much more range of motion, even in like forearms, wrists, et cetera. So it even affects things like in terms of putting. And actually people who have menstrual cycles, it's been proven if you're playing during your period, it's like playing in a 30 to 40 mile an hour wind. And that research was done by Shane Lowry's um, S&C coach, which is pretty interesting. So <laughs> even Sorry, like it, because, fact, because what? Because you get wobbly. I, d I haven't read the paper. I've just been told like the top line of it. So I don't know the exact reasoning oh. for why, but the research of the paper came out that basically you're more unstable in that time. And it's Got the you. effect of playing in a 30 to 40 mile an hour wind. So even not having <laughs> like that is an advantage in itself. So there's so many like physical things that affect like your golf, even in terms of like generally women have less speed, less angle of attack because of like wrist strength hitting into the ground. So it's going to affect your spin structure. So that's why typically you'll see women trying to launch it a lot higher on LPGA because they don't have the ability to spin it as much to stop it on the green. So even if you can spin it like 500 RPM more, that's like a massive advantage. That's a really interesting thing, actually, because this brings me back to BTME. Um, when I was talking about this um, talk that I went to at the Open and the difference, one of the things that they actually covered that I can talk about here is the differences between um, setting up a course for the men for the Open and setting up a course for, for women for the AIG Women's Open. And one of the things that the championship manager was saying was, you know, you've got to be, You've got to be you've got to be very clear on what you're doing with things like green speed. He said they basically said with 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 the open they're just setting it up as difficult as possible. They're making it as hard as possible. But one of the things he said about the AIG Women's Open was women hit with a flatter trajectory. They're hitting a longer club with a flatter trajectory. So if you had the same green speeds, for example, necessarily as you would at an open at the AIG Women's Open, you've got women coming in from further back with longer clubs. It just wouldn't hold the putting surface. Um, because of the difference in trajectory, difference in flight, difference in, in, in the clubs that they're taking. So um, just interesting to hear Hannah talk about that and resonating with, obviously, what I'd heard earlier on in this week in Harrogate. Yeah, and I think that Hannah's explained that unbelievably eloquently and obviously from a sort of position of knowledge. And it kind of does sort of highlight the fact that it is a problem that needs resolving because there is an undeniable difference and an undeniable advantage, I think. Um, and I think like the other problem is like you need to provide somewhere. If you're saying these people shouldn't be competing on the LPGA, there needs to be somewhere for them to compete. And that's not what we're providing at all currently. 
Like, if they don't want to compete, like, in... Well, they wouldn't want to compete PJ Tour now because that's not their identity and not who they are. And also, they've transitioned from that. So, actually, it would still be unfair for them to compete there. But it's also unfair for them to compete on the LPGA. But if, if they want to play competitively, we need to provide somewhere where that can happen. It can't just be, you can't play here, and you can't play here, and that's the end of it. I think that is the point, though, that... There needs to be um, a resolution to how how we move forward because what we've got currently is not is not fit for purpose, is it? Um, that was good. So let's get stuck into this gear stuff, shall we? Hannah's on the show today because she is one of Britain's biggest experts on golf equipment. She's been writing for NCG for five or six years about all things golf gear. She has her own YouTube channel, which creates a huge amount of product reviews, product head-to-heads. She turns loads and loads of press trips. She's on first-name terms with all the big tech people, all the big brands. Uh, and she spent this week running around, meeting people from all corners of the golf industry about their weird and wonderful new products. How's it going? How many steps did you do yesterday? Oh, that's a good question. I did, I've done 16,000 when we left the show, but then we took a very weird route around half of Orlando to find somewhere for dinner. Went to our local, didn't we? Bahama Breeze. We go there every year. <laughs> it's quite weird the show because it's massive and you wander around for ages and think you've seen everything and then you kind of go around this corner and there's the same amount again and inevitably you book one meeting at one end and the next one at the other and end up running up and down this aisleway for half the day so as i said at the sort of top of the top of the show like this this week is kind of set up so uh, pj pros from around america can meet with brands and buy their gear for the coming season and i think in the sort of olden days this this week was this kind of big reveal um, so like demo day was the first day that pros would have the chance to hit the new product and they wouldn't have seen what was coming from TaylorMade or Callaway. Um, the launch cycle sort of slightly different now, isn't it? And we get kind of press releases and, and press trips happening in the back end of last year and that gets leaked online and samples will be sent out. So by the time we get to the trade show, a lot of the, the kind of new products and the kind of tech behind it um, is already kind of known. And we've obviously had launches from Callaway and TaylorMade, Ping, Cobra in the early part of this year. Um, so what what is the kind of what new stuff have you seen this week that perhaps you has kind of opened your eyes? What are the big trends that you're seeing at the show? Uh, should we start with new equipment first? There has been a few things. It's more on the like wedge putter front because we've obviously had drivers and everything earlier in the year. So Ping got new wedges, Berkey's got new wedges, new Scotty Cameron putters. So that's more of the like new stuff we've seen that wasn't out before. Um, although Mizuno did release a new driver, which is like an extension of their current range. Um, There's quite a few like weird and wonderful like training aids and accessories and things. I was particularly liking this mini golf ball locker, not golf ball, mini locker for your golf ball markers. So if you're someone who likes to collect little ball markers wherever you go, it's pretty cool. Um, he showed me that last night it's got like little shelves in to put them on it's, it's neat little shelves little, little magnets in the walls can, can someone pick me up one please <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah a lot of it's like training aids I spent quite a while wandering around the new product section looking at the weird and wonderful things in there um, there were some insoles that read the green sphere but showers all over they do what? read the green sphere? yeah they read like the break and then it comes upon your phone and like shows you where the put's going to break from Right. Like I'm not entirely sure how that's possible. Or legal. If you want to practice your putting on slopes, like traditionally the only real way to do that was to go on like a pretty expensive movable floor, put out a bringing out a, a putting mat, which you can add up to 7% slope to in each direction through like hand pumps on each side. So you can change the slope in like three segments. That's crazy. Well, like an airbed basically. Basically like a put-in airbed, yeah. <laughs> right, Which how much is I think that? I need to invest in, given how bad my put-in was on the slopey greens this week at Streamsong. <laughs> and also I went on a, a simulator that was in a truck. It's literally in a truck, so like the sides pop out and make it wide enough to swing in. And there's like a full simulator in it, and then you can just drive them around and park them wherever. People put a pin code on the door wandering for their hour of practice and leave again like a mobile practice home yeah i was particularly fond of that because i got nearest the pin so i want a t-shirt mm. <laughs> sounds pretty good it might be slight bias that 
And you're uh, part of what you've been doing this week has been hitting all of the new products in sort of warmer weather. Um, one of the things you've done is your new um, the best drivers video, which I know you filmed on Sunday. Um, you've been hitting the new wedges and new irons. Are there any particular trends this year um, in the gear that we're seeing? Are manufacturers going in different directions, or they're, they're all all working on the same things? People have definitely gone all in on forgiveness this year. Like everyone has gone for more forgiving models, it seems. You know, Ping have come out with an extension of their G430 line with a new forgiving model in like an off-cycle year where they never normally bring new product out. Mizuno have added an extra more forgiving model to their range. TaylorMade are all about forgiveness. Um, if if someone else says 10K, <laughs> like, honestly, if you're going to tech things, please, that say 10K. You're going to say MOI, 10K, and AI. You're going to give us a quiz later, aren't you? So I don't want to delve too much into these acronyms. Or you might you might give the game away. So it's kind of the, this forgiveness story is what we're is what is happening. And are you, are you finding for, in your testing that they're, they're kind of delivering on that message? Like you finding the stuff is easier to hit than last year? Yes, but I think people need to have a bit of an understanding of what brands mean when they say forgiving. So some, some people hit them. It's like. If you have a seven left path with a seven left face, the ball is going to go left. <laughs> like the brands can't change that. But what they're trying to do is if you hit it out the toe or the heel, control how much that goes offline. So I think that they definitely are more forgiving in that sense. I mean, in my tailor made fitting, the 10K driver, we got fit and then Tomo, who designed some of the products who was ridiculously insightful i don't know how he ended up fitting me it was pretty an insane experience just goes right just hit some out the toe and hit some out the heel now and one i was thinking you clearly think i'm better than i am if i can just like strike it out of the toe on demand but two i hit one out the toe one out the heel and both the balls still landed not in the width of the fairway but in the width of a green jesus that is quite impressive. So what you're what you're saying is the forgiveness is basically helping you with off center strikes. It's not helping you with swing path, is it? Yeah, and there is a little bit of face help. It's not not so. If you're someone who hits a massive slice and you struggle with a massive open face, there are models on the market that will help you square the face up. But if you're on massive extremes or you do something that's the opposite to what you set up for, you, you're still going to hit the ball offline. Yeah, yeah. But yes. if, it, if it's in terms of like off-centre strike, there is some serious help there. Yeah. So we're saying that the story is about forgiveness, and you're saying that they are delivering on that, and, and things are helping you more with off-centre strikes. And 10K is, like a, is, uh, is not a phrase that relates to the price of golf equipment, but we are sort of heading in that direction aren't we the stuff is getting more and more expensive what why have prices gone up and why why is the stuff so expensive i think people have been a bit mindful of pricing this year like some of TaylorMade stuff's come down and even in terms of callaway i think some of theirs has come down they said they thought they priced it too high last year but i think i don't know price points are really interesting one because obviously you pick up a driver for 500 pounds and that is a lot of money like it is an expensive product, but also I've been in like the R and D facilities and the uh, manufacturing facilities where they make this stuff, and there is like seriously expensive kit in there, and there is like a lot of technology going in to make these clubs. So I don't think they're overpriced, but they that doesn't mean they're not expensive. I think it's quite a hard debate. Like people, manufacturers are spending millions of pounds just on machinery to build stuff never mind like all the processes they're spending on developing new technologies outside of that so it's it's quite a hard yeah that it's quite a hard one to put your line on that is a that is a nice soundbite to say that they're not overpriced but that doesn't mean they're not expensive i think that's that's a very sort of good way of putting it and we're talking about can i talk so so can i talk it as like the average golfer who's the person <clears throat> who's obviously paying for this money and we don't understand the tech that goes into it we don't understand the research that goes into it what we see is like a tweet which has a driver cut in half and all we can see what's underneath the driver is a completely hollow shell i saw one recently for one of the drivers they'd like ripped it open 
can't remember who'd done it, but they'd ripped it open and there was nothing inside it. And the comments were as you would expect them to be. Well, what are we paying all this money for if things just a hollow shell? Because I wonder if you could just explain, you know, sort of me, the technology that goes into making a driver mm-hmm. like that, the research, the R and D. What is it that um, that makes those clubs so special? Because you know, if you go back 20, 30 years ago, driver was a big block of solid wood or it was a big block of aluminium. Now they're completely hollow. So what is it that makes these things A so expensive and B the technological marvels that that equipment manufacturers would tell us they are? Well I think it would be a lot cheaper to just get a block of wood <laughs> and cut it into the shape of a driver. As you can imagine, I think that's almost the hard thing to get your head around because there's less there, but that's a lot harder to build. You know, TaylorMade's driver this year, the full face is carbon, the full top line, like um, crown is carbon. And some of the intricacies and the cost of that is actually being able to manufacture it to get it to fit together with such little materials. Because the problem with weight is, or the solid block of wood idea, you've got a lot of weight in places that you don't want it. So, so much of driver performance is about center of gravity relative to loft. So, say, Steve, you need to hit it higher. You've got to have the center of gravity low. Well, if I have a full block of wood, there is loads of weight high up in the head. So, suddenly I'm giving you a lot more spin and you're hitting the ball lower. So, if you think of like an old hickory, it's a lot harder to flight it. And that that is the reason. So, most of people, what they need is they need the weight low and back. And to get forgiveness, you also need then weight on the perimeters, which doesn't help with speed at all. It's completely counterintuitive. So once you've actually got the weight where you need it, then you've got to change the whole shaping to get you to be able to swing it at speed that allows you to get some distance. So there's there's so many trade-offs to balance in the club head when you're trying to make that balance between speed and forgiveness. But you're having to do so much in terms of shaving material a lot of the research and development and the cost ends up being in researching materials. Well, I think that's, that's the whole cost. Like, just Yeah. So if we, I keep using TaylorMade as an example, but it's an, it's an easy story to tell because of the carbon. You know, they spent 20 years trying to layer carbon to get the face to work. So it's lighter, so they're saving weight there. I, mean, it's, <laughs> I think that's 20 years of cost to put into one driver. And then someone's annoyed because it's like thirty pounds more. But what was funding that twenty years of research? Yeah, I think that's that's really well explained. I was just going to say, Steve, it's not a commodity. A golf club's not like gold, is it? So to these people saying, "Oh, why am I paying five hundred pounds for a hollow shell?" Like, do they also say my iPhone's not very big? Can I have a bigger one? Well, well I mean, I think the issue is that the golf clubs have gone up a lot in price in a, in a relatively short space of time. Um, now that might be because, you know, years ago there was, there was subsidizing, there was subsidizing in prices uh, to retailers because obviously a, a manufacturer might have an RRP and a retailer would sell it cheaper. Um, but I mean, if you go back to when I first joined our company, Tom, in 2016, I mean, I was like known, I was like known for being the guy that bought a new set of irons every year or every 18 months who buy a new driver. I was looking at the price of the M2. I was looking at the price of the M2, right? Which was my, like my favorite TaylorMade driver. It cost me three, two, it was three, two, nine RRP in 2016. And I bought it six months later for two, six, nine. And now, obviously, the tailor-made drivers are five hundred pounds. A cost of uh, even a, um, a relatively uh, forgiving set of drivers, which set of irons, sorry, which are obviously a lot less than the forged ones. You know, they're looking at you're looking at eight hundred and fifty quid now, seven between seven hundred and fifty and nine hundred quid. Go into the forged stuff. I mean, you know, you can you can be looking at a lot of money, and I think that this is where club golfers get a bit confused because they say right well i understand there's all this science in it and understand there's all this r&d in it i understand inflation and i understand companies have to make a profit but the price of this club has doubled in eight years that that's that's what they're you know the price of these irons have doubled in 10 years i think that's where the where a lot of the kind of I wouldn't say it's mistrust, but where the kind of sort of cynicism comes from. You know, if you put an equipment story on our website and people will go, bloody hell, another driver. Do you know what I mean? Oh, they've only just brought something else out. But like, if I buy a new car, I don't get annoyed if they bring one out six months later. Like, I replace my car when I need a new car in the same way that I would replace my driver when I feel I need a new driver. 
And I think I would be more annoyed if it came to four years later and I wanted a new club and there wasn't one there. Yeah, I mean, no one's forcing you to buy this stuff. No one's forcing you to buy this stuff, are they? No. I mean, that's a key point. Also, you've got to remember on the price point stuff, like every year it gets harder for manufacturers to make the products better because, again, near illegal limits, they've got rules enforcing what they can do. So they've got to look at more complicated ways to get around you know, the rules that are in place limiting things. So you have to go for more expensive materials and different things like that, which then drives the price up. So, so maybe you should be saying to the RNA, we will get rid of the equipment rules for amateurs. We can have cheaper solutions to make our drivers. So, but we've already got rid of amateurs though. So there's no need to ask them that. The, um, the your car analogy doesn't quite work, does it? Because if you get a new car, then it's not like the next year someone brings out a model of that car that's going to be like faster or whatever, because you can't go any faster. And I think that in golf equipment, the kind of a lot of the resentment from the consumer comes because they feel like they're missing out. And that's where I think a lot of the cynicism about the, the performance claims from um, one year to the next come from as well. So if you've, if I'd bought the, I don't know, the Stealth 2 last year, and all of a sudden, um, the QI 10s out this year, which is claiming to be more forgiving or longer, whatever it is, then I'm, I, I feel like I'm missing out. So I kind of like have to take a oppositional view and say, oh, bloody, it's too expensive and I bet it doesn't go any further, et cetera, et cetera. So would you, would you say to people that it is worth investing in new gear every year? As in, do you think, yes, there's definitely a performance benefit from one year to another across the brand? Um, I think it really depends on like their individual person and what, they're trying to achieve so if you take someone who's like maybe a really top amateur they're trying to turn pro they're willing to pay for marginal gains then potentially but i don't think most golfers need to upgrade every year and i don't think most brands expect people to upgrade every year i think there's places where there's exceptions if you're playing frequent golf you probably should have a new lob wedge every year because you're gonna wear the face out you know tightless research say about 75 rounds and that's without practice so if you're doing a lot of practice especially out of bunkers they wear the face more you should be replacing your lob wedge you really should have a fresh set of grips every year but some of the state of grips in club golfers is just like how are you even keeping hold of the like golf club i don't understand it but there's not not everything through the bag needs replacing every year so oh i replace stuff (laughs) a lot because i have access to the equipment but before when i was playing like still playing top level amateur stuff you know i would probably replace my kit every four years it depends a bit on how much you're playing and how quickly you're wearing things out Um, and it also just depends on how much you want to improve so i'd say on this year's drivers probably i've seen like three to five yards carry distance gain maybe it's not much half a club and obviously that'll depend on how well you've been fit before um and what models you're moving into definitely seen some steps up in forgiveness this year but i think this has been a big year for that and people have done it really well. You don't always see that, but I think you have this season. And I think it really depends on what you're doing. Like I, I changed my swing quite a lot last year. I've gone from like hitting the ball the highest physically possible to flighting it a lot lower. And I have changed a lot of my equipment, like completely different shafts, completely different lofts. I mean, I went for the PXG fitting and last year they fit me into a 7.5 degree head with like a longer than standard shaft because I was swinging seven degrees up on it and swinging it 100 mile an hour and launching it. And this year they fit me into a 10.5 head with a shorter than standard shaft <laughs> because I'd lowered my ball flight and I needed more spin. Right. So like, if you've not changed anything in your swing and you're quite happy with your performance and your clubs aren't worn out, then you don't need to change anything. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's, that's, again, you've put that really well. Um, and so if you can afford it, then why wouldn't you, I guess, is what you're saying. You will find kind of marginal um, in, improvements in performance. But equally, if it's not broke, don't try and fix it. You're not going to get left behind. So for, the, for those people who don't have £500 to spend on a new driver or £1,500 to spend on a new set of irons, like what are the sort of best budget options that you see that are at slightly lower price points? Um, I think, well, there's, there's so many good second-hand places now. We take like golf clubs for cash. You can go up to their place in Edinburgh and they literally have like four indoor simulator bays and you can go and actually try stuff out, which I think is a massive improvement of just picking anything off the shelf. Like I think 
I would always recommend to people going for a fitting somewhere, even if it's for stuff you're not going to necessarily buy, but getting a really good markup of like what specs suit you. So like what flex should I be in? What weight should I be in? What type of head should I be in? What loft do I need? And then going to try and search and find something like that on the secondhand market. Or you've got like your brands that are still providing cheaper options such as like Wilson which have really good performance and are definitely like underrated on the market there's obviously also online like D2C options that are cheaper um, or like package sets but I, I do think you should go somewhere first and get some sort of like idea of what specs you need like I'm massive on custom fitted because I just don't know why you'd invest so much money in clubs and not at least have some sort of fitting because some of the performance difference are insane. Like for a Callaway fitting last year, and like the direction and distance control has been like 20 yards difference in terms of carry and easily that in terms of side dispersion just from being fit. Like if I'm going to invest that money in a club anyway, like most people give you the money back for the fitting if you purchase a product. And it's still such, it's still a really it's small it. percentage of people. It, it's mad to me that people complain about prices and then go spend 500 quid on a driver that they just pulled off a shelf that might not even be the right option for them anyway. So I think it's undeniable that um, custom fitting is like massively important. Um, and that, that has to be a takeaway for people. If you're going to go and spend £500 on a new driver, for God's sake, go and get fitted for it. Right, so you've got some questions for us, I'm told. We like a quiz on this podcast. Steve does a, a weekly rules call. I'm telling you this, I know you don't listen to it. Um, but we did task you with setting as a equipment quiz. Uh, I'm quite up for this. How are we going to do it? Are we going to sort of do it as an on the buzzer thing? Or are we going to get a question each? I think we should have a question uh, each. If you don't know it, then it passes to the other person. Okay. I'll even let Steve go first. Oh, okay. dangerous. Okay, Steve. Tailmade have a new line of products with the QI name in it. What does QI stand for? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um... Quality? <laughs> this is good. I didn't think anyone would get this. Okay. Uh, no, I, I have no idea. Tom, do you know it? Uh, are, you, are you looking at your phone? I can see you searching something. That would be the terrible thing to do. Yes, you Unbelievable. are. Unbelievable. Cheats at the sports pub's quiz. I'm Cheats in his quiz. Here's what I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for quantum inertia. No, you got one of the words, but no. Quest I? for inertia. Quest for inertia. Ah. So the, the whole point is about the quest to produce the club head that tw twists the less um, to gain more forgiveness. So, yeah, quest for inertia. Can I have half? Uh, 0. 0.25. <laughs> <laughs> it feels more and more like the Christmas quiz every second now. 0. 0.25, 0. 0.5. Okay, Tom, what does COR stand for? I know this one. Uh, I don't know it. Why don't I know it? What are we talking about it? Core? No, that's what that's the that's what the acronym spells. Oh no, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. I hate myself for not knowing. Okay, I'm timing you out, Steve. Come on, this is a rules one. <laughs> do I get do I get half a point for saying core blimey? <laughs> I, to be honest, I only ever refer to it as core. I actually don't. I did, actually didn't know. It's something to do with coefficients, isn't it? But I don't. I don't know. Coefficient of restitution. Correct. You can have 0.25 as well. You're tired. Uh, so that's basically the efficiency of energy transfer from one object to the other. So the RNA and the USGA have a legal limit on COR, um, which affects how fast the club pace can be in effect. So people talk about it as like the trampoline effect. I've forgotten pace. what it stands for already. <laughs> you ready for more? You ready for more? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're not doing our we're not doing our brand ambassador status very very good stuff, are we? Okay, you should be able to get this one, Tom. What is MOI? It's Steve's question, though, and it's annoying because I know the answer. Is, is it, it mo moment of inertia? Correct. Hey! <laughs> We've got points on the ball. We've got points on. God, the next one's easy as well, too, Tom. What's what's um, COG? Oh, I don't know what COG is. But it's quite often known as CG. It's something to do with balance, isn't it? This is literally my easiest question, Tom. I, I think I know this as well. Centre of gravity. Correct. Okay, but this doesn't work because I had five questions, so are you going to share the last one? Yeah, just do it as a right. buzzer. So it's one, 
We've both got one. Okay, lots of five. drivers. Lots of drivers this year are ten k. But what does that mean? It's to do with um, ten thousand. It stands for, and it is to do with um, how how easy it is if you hit it off off center hit. So it's a forgiveness thing, and it means that. Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> It's the um, it's the RPM that I'm going to achieve when I hit one of them. <laughs> so, so, so 10k means 10,000 MOI. So it's it's a forgiveness measurement, um, but it's actually a combination of two um, MOI figures. So the vertical um, and the horizontal MOI of a club. So there is actually a limit of 5,900 on the vertical axis. So from the bottom of the sole of the club to the crown. But there's no limit, like left to right and such, which is how people have managed to push it up to ten thousand. Amazing. So, what was it? A tie at one point two five out of five. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to come on and do some more equipment quizzes. I think we need to go on a training course. We we clearly need some education. Hannah, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for contributing to amateur debate as well and the transgender debate. I thought it was really interesting stuff. You need to go and get ready, don't you? Yeah, I'm filming with Titleist in an hour and one minute. Right. Off you go then, and we can finish, wrap up here with Rules Corner, can't we, Steve? So I don't think we're quick. We're just gamuts for a quiz, aren't we? We've been doing a lot of car journey quizzes this week. I think we are. Let's head straight over to Rules Corner. So regular listeners will know that Steve is a qualified rules official and every week on this podcast he sets me a teaser based on a rule that he's uncovered that week or a reader's question. We've had two of these so far and it's one all, isn't it, Steve? I've got one right and one wrong. You have, yes. Um, you got off to a flying start and then I um, I managed to equalise last week, didn't I, with what I thought was a fairly straightforward question, but it, but it stumped right. you. Right. So come on then, what have you got? So I've got an interesting one for you around animals. Yes, uh, clearly one of the best things about golf is being in and around nature. Um, I love seeing a flock of deer coming across the fairway um, early of a morning or a tame squirrel begging for a tidbit. It's all fantastic, isn't it? Um, I will ignore the crow that stole the sandwich um, from the top of my bag at the castle course at St Andrews, just completely went off with it and destroyed it absolute beast of a thing anyway the issue uh, with playing a game in and around such creatures is that our golf course is their home and sometimes they do things in their backyards and that might impact the way we want to play a shot especially when they start digging so i'm often asked by people about animal holes and even more so about scrapings and whether players can have free relief so this can get a bit confusing for people but i am going to ask you tom can you get free relief from animal scrapings right <clears throat> so that's interesting so the golf course i grew up at was louth in lincolnshire qi alarm goes off quantum inertia alarm goes off wasn't quite what was it anyway uh, and we had loads of um sort of standalone kind of conifer trees right so it wasn't they were like in a forest they were just sort of on their own so if you hit a conifer tree and drop down to the bottom it was like really annoying because like it was often in like a vast expanse of open space. And if you were like a yard to the right, you'd just have a normal shot to the green. And quite a lot often at the bottom of these trees, there was like sort of muddy bits and people would always be claiming rabbit scrapings so they could take free relief from said rabbit scrapings. So you're asked, but you are asking me this question because I, I, I think I would have leapt in and said, yeah, of course you can. And I'm wondering whether the rule has changed where a scraping you can't, but if it's, like if the thing has made a hole, as in if it's burrowed a hole where it lives, then you can have relief. I think you can have relief from a rabbit hole, but not a rabbit scraping. There you go. That's my answer. Very well done. Um, you will not find anything in the rules of golf about animal scrapings. That is a big clue. Um, there is an entire definition about animal holes. It's rule 16.1. It covers abnormal course conditions. It says free relief is allowed from interference by animal holes. What is an animal hole? Uh, the definition says it is any hole dug in the ground by an animal, except for holes dug by animals that are also defined as loose impediments like worms and insects and so on. The definition goes further and says that an animal hole also includes 
includes the loose material the animal dug out of the hole, a worn down track or trail that leads into the hole and any area on the ground that's either pushed up or altered as a result of an animal that's been digging a hole underground. So what you get, Tom, is you have to make a decision, right? What is your ball lying on? Is it a hole or is it that something, is it just a scratching that's caused an irregularity of the surface? If it's the first, well, it's an abnormal course condition and you can take free relief. If it's the other, sorry, crack on. So 2-1 to you. You've that's been good. successful this week. That was good. I enjoyed that whole chat, actually. I'm going to have to go now and sort of reflect on the fact that I spend an awful lot of my time talking to people about golf equipment, but seemingly none of it has gone into my brain. So that was quite a disappointing section. <laughs> tell you what, she's good though, isn't she? Like, honestly, just, she has like proper rounded points of views about difficult problems uh, and is out there sort of living and breathing it on a kind of day-to-day basis. I'm not sure I've ever met anyone who quite just never, never sort of puts golf down sort of physically or mentally like as much as Hannah. Um, so it was cool to get her sort of point of view on stuff. Um, I'm working really hard on this special guest for next week, Steve. It's looking very likely. Well, I'm, I am, I'm waiting with bated breath. Um, there's an animal reference for you um, to see uh, who it could be. Well, it's going to be a good one, right? I need to go now and uh, do about eighty thousand meetings in the next ten hours uh, before heading home tomorrow. But nice to see you both, and good luck at the rest of the day at the PGS show. Yes, and for all our regular listeners, please remember to subscribe um, to our podcast. Um, make sure you click the button, get the alerts, whether you use Apple or Spotify or Google Play, whatever you use, um, please subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next week.